1: you're listening to a share radio podcast in my first inaugural address i committed this country to the tireless task of combating climate change and protecting this planet for future generations two weeks ago in paris i said before the world that we needed a strong global agreement to accomplish this goal an enduring agreement that reduces global carbon pollution and sets the world on a course to a low-carbon future. A few hours ago, we succeeded. We came together around the strong agreement the world needed. We met the moment.
0: The words there of the US President Barack Obama giving his reaction to the climate change deal brokered in Paris last December. You might say he was also claiming the credit for that. Well, anyway, among the headline-making initiatives was the promise to keep global temperature increases below two degrees Celsius. Yet for some green activists, the deal was hardly a resounding success. Countries may be legally bound to have their emission reduction levels checked, but there's flexibility on how they go about hitting their targets. What about the economics of climate change? Did Paris make the link between excess human consumption and the impact on economies dependent on fossil fuels? Is it time to switch to a materialism that's environmentally friendly and economically kinder? I'm joined in the studio by the author Andrew Sims of the New Economics Foundation and by Share Radio's regular economics commentator, Professor John Weeks. Gentlemen, a very good afternoon to both of you.
2: Good afternoon. afternoon.
0: Let's take the general overview of climate change summits, because do you feel, either of you really, that perhaps economics has been examined in isolation from the environment. The two go together, yet, certainly in terms of the coverage, we tend to focus on CO2 emission targets and the impact on oceans, etc. But somewhere along the line, the much broader economic dimension is excluded
1: from the debate. Uh, Andrew is the expert, but I just want to put in one quick comment. I think economists, particularly mainstream economists, have been very bad on this issue altogether. I think that they have the wrong methodology. It's a marginal methodology. Uh, by that means, it's just concerned about you know <laughs> looking at uh, what happens if you get a little bit more of this, a little bit more of that, a little bit less of that. that and that's not what climate change is about. It's, I think, uh, what do they call it, a chaotic system? And at any rate, <laughs> I think economics has got it completely by the wrong end of the stick. I think there's a great
2: irony in that um Very often, if you are interested in the environment, you end up having a conversation with a conventional economist. Um, They tell you to live in the real world. And the great irony of that is the one thing that mainstream economics does is not deal with the real world. And I mean that quite literally, i.e. the impact on the environment is considered to be an externality. It's something that lives outside the models. And I think one of the big problems about the climate negotiations has been there's been an assumption that we can tackle this problem entirely within the existing economic model, which has been flying blind on the major environmental issues. There hasn't been an understanding that we might need some fundamental redesigns of how we do economics as well as how we tackle emissions at the end of a pipe, because it's the economic system which drives those emissions which are causing climate change.
0: Mm. Hence this connection with the real world. Why why do you think... It's missing because from what you've said, these climate change conferences, they have a very narrow prism through which they see the world, from which they approach the issue. So why haven't they broadened things out, so to speak, so that it, it means a lot to the man and the woman in the street or the, the man or the woman who's running a business or who wants to engage with the environment So, to speak, in, in another way? Well, I think
2: people have taken a want They've wanted to think there's a kind of a nice comforting notion that with uh, a little bit of extra technology, um, a few little tweaks here and there, that we might be able to um, deal with this issue without... Rocking the boat without questioning some of the interests which allowing things to carry on as they are um, are are behind. And I think the the moment you start saying that we need we may actually need to do things fundamentally differently, um, people get a little bit uncomfortable because it means you have to deal with issues like the huge differences, the asymmetries, the imbalances of consumption between the global north and the global south. Um, And part of the problem is that the economic model that we have if you're concerned about global poverty for example and eradicating poverty and getting people above the you know 2 or 3 dollar a day income with the the inequality we have in the world at the moment you're you end up with this paradox that to get tiny amounts of poverty reduction at the bottom of the global income stretch requires ever more Overconsumption by the already rich, who are already consuming too much and are a big part of things like the climate problem. Mm.
0: So it is that change, basically, that because we're over-consuming, we're putting pressure on our industries. We're feeding into this environmental pollution, that in turn impacts on the poorer, developing world.
2: That's right, and of course, the thing we have to remember, where a problem like climate change is concerned, is that. All the scenarios are telling us that it's the people living in the more environmentally marginal lands in the poorest parts of the world who will be hit first and worst. So, the the, the challenge now is to come up with an economic system where you can meet the human development challenge but stay the right side of the planetary Mm. boundaries of the environmental thresholds. Now, that finger in terms of where the changes need to happen is pointing very squarely at places like Europe and North America, the already industrialised countries. Mm. It's up to us to prove that we can do things differently.
0: Which is fascinating, John, because if you look, for example, at some of the uh, macroeconomic numbers, etc, that have been coming out of developed economies, particularly those which have been suffering from export drops, there is a reliance on that overconsumption by uh, the individuals, the sense that somehow or other the consumer can be the driver of growth if you've got a weak export sector.
1: Well, that's exactly right. We've had several people in here, uh, Andrew, talking about the problems of consumer debt, and that is very much the (coughs) model which is being pursued in Britain and in the United States, less so on the continent, uh, but still there's some of that there. And (coughs) I think we need to link this to something you said, trying the fiction that the environmental problem can be solved through some technological breakthrough. Because, for example, from time to time we come across uh, articles that say, ah, there's going to be a big discovery in carbon capture and so therefore we'll be able to capture all this carbon and stuff it away somewhere and so we don't really have to consume any less of, of fossil fuels because we'll have a solution to it. I mean, these are really fantasies of the of a world that things uh, thinks or a part of the world that thinks it can keep on consuming in the same way
2: yeah that's right that's right and and a great irony for example is the way in which we we measure our emissions, um, which has led to some sort of false notions about how well we're doing. So if you look at the official accounts for the United Kingdom's greenhouse gas emissions, and you compare them um, around about now from the time just before the, um, the Rio Earth Summit happened, and the government have claimed huge successes in cutting their emissions, until you ask the question, um, what's happened to those emissions and in fact we've had virtually no progress at all because all that's happened is we might have closed down a lot of our industries but those emissions happen in other countries which are making the goods which we then consume mm. here so there was some research published in the american proceedings of the national academy of sciences that show that actually we've had virtually no progress at the aggregate level in terms of reducing our consumption that all these emissions come from because we've just been sort of shuffling it around the world and exporting them to other countries that are doing our manufacturing so it and producing So basically it's a forests. nonsense,
0: There's this this target that came out of Paris of, of 2 degrees Celsius. In actual fact, it's complete nonsense because uh, it's we, we'd have to go lower if we we're, if we're to make any tangible difference. There's two
2: important things to say about that. Um, all the pledges that were made in Paris... Point Depending upon whose, I mean, there is some debate in the scientific community about how well those commitments will do. Um, the range is roughly from about, it mm. will keep us to about 2.7 to 4 degrees um, above pre-industrial levels. Either way, that's too far. But even then it's based upon some models they use which assume a number of things which stretch the imagination. You have so to dodgy assume... mathematics, basically. Well there's a little bit of dodgy math in the sense that a lot of the models that underpin those calculations assume that our emissions started to fall several years ago, and they haven't, and they're still rising. So actually, at the moment, we are still heading in the wrong direction. And there was another pledge at Paris that we shouldn't be aiming just at a two-degree target, Mm. but a 1.5-degree target, an an even tighter target, which means that we're going to have to see some really, really radical changes.
0: Mm. And, and of course, that depends on the willingness of, of, of countries to actually make those changes. But let's take it back to a point about consumption, because one of the things which did make the agenda at Paris was this whole business of compensation. Now, there are a number of countries who've been badly impacted by global warming, and they've said, well, look, it's all very well and good you people actually, if not acknowledging your culpability, at least accepting that something is happening and we're on the receiving end of this, but who's going to help us, compensate us for, for, what, for what Well, There was happened. a diplomatic
2: sleight of hand in Paris as well because whilst they because acknowledged... It wasn't, it
0: wasn't nailed.
2: Exactly. They acknowledged the damage that this was causing to a lot of developing countries but they kept out any language of actual compensation. Um, so that was the only way they thought they could get a deal signed off. But those issues are not going to go away. But I think one of the key points that comes through, if you look at it from the perspective of many developing countries. Now, of course, um, the global economy is a very unequal and imbalanced place anyway. And there's many international commitments for the transfer of technology, for the transfer of resources, which are already, have already been agreed and never lived up to. So at a base level, we've got to get to that point. But I think from if you're a developing country and you want to you know, raise the well-being and the livelihoods of people... Ha- that there, there is an opportunity to make some decisions which can avoid the dirty development path. Now, China is an exceptional example. You can't use it as a proxy for many other countries because it is so large as an economy. It is so unusual. And it's in
0: transition. And
2: it's in transition. But if you take a look at China, they are both simultaneously the world's biggest manufacturer of renewable energy technologies. But they're also building a lot of coal-fired plants. And you have the mayor of Beijing saying that they have clearly have a problem with their development model if... You get to a point where you cannot breathe the air in your capital city and they know that things need to change. Now, I think what's important is to set an example. So if you're living in the UK, if you're living in North America, if you're living in Europe, we're the ones who have to show it's possible to have a good quality of life with much lower levels mm. of consumption. Now, the good thing there is several decades of of research across the board show that there is no link once you get past the point of meeting of your basic material needs there is no meaningful link between your level of consumption and your level of well-being mm. now for decades in the UK our levels of consumption have been going up and up and up our material consumption our well-being has flatlined we know it's possible to make the change whilst maintaining good quality of life and consuming much less but constructing the argument to persuade people that it ain't going to hurt that
0: mm. it's going to be
2: okay the other side is our
0: big challenge Right, and, and that that is the challenge but again something i'd like to throw out to the both of you what we're talking about here is an alternative economic model when we go into these big summits etc and if i were very very cynical and i'm not for one moment suggesting that i am i could <laughs> argue that um, perhaps part of the problem is that Um, Having been to one of these these conferences, I went to the COP21 in Paris, you tend to find that, okay, you've got people who are going there with with different vested interests, be they politicians, be they environmental activists, but you've also got the corporate wing that's been represented. And you could say, well, of course they're not going to want um, the alternative model, because if we're going to consume less, then that's going to hit them. So as long as they still hold some sway then it's a case of dream on. This is fantasy la-la land that we're living in. It ain't going to happen, certainly not in our lifetime, maybe somebody's,
1: but not now. Well, I, would, I think that... I mean, there is some truth in that, and I think uh, um, uh, the, climate, uh, the climate issue is uh, as much a class issue as it is a, a country issue, and because the high consumption is by the well-to-do in every country... I mean the the poor in Britain consume more than the poor in Zimbabwe, say. So, but but, the, but at the top, it's about the same. But I, I think the there's money to be made in new technologies, in making the transition, and what governments need to do throughout the developed world, because as Andrew said, we probably have to take the lead is to provide those incentives to make the shift so that the people who produce um, wind turbines and things such as that carry some political weight and can get into an effective argument with the people who belch out um, uh, pollutants for uh, mass consumption.
2: I think these things are very finely balanced at the moment. There's certainly a constituency within the corporate world who don't want you to rock the boat. There are other players, some quite significant players, who have been ahead of governments in some cases, saying the writing is on the wall, they've seen what's coming, they've got a vision of a more circular economy, which is much more about the provision of services where you maintain and you kind of lease products rather than disposable um, stuff just kind of dumped and then, you know, one-stop shop on the way to the, the, the landfill site. So I think things are changing. And I think in the short term, actually there's a big win-win out there. Um, A huge investment in the green economy through a so-called green New Deal can do a number of things at the same time and take an, a, a, a you know relatively wealthy advanced industrialized country like the UK. We nevertheless have a huge problem with fuel poverty. We are very vulnerable in terms of our energy politics and about the way the world works. We've got to meet our climate targets. Now you take a program of stimulus spending which can lead to the improvement of our building stock so that our homes aren't cold and drafty in winter. Can we? which reduces our energy use, which creates jobs, um, local jobs where people kind of need them at a, a, a range of skill levels, you're helping people at the bottom of the income pile, you're rebooting the economy but doing it in a way which sets it onto a lower energy consumption path and you're bringing about a general benefit to the common good. So I think there's ways in which we can imagine what the next steps might look like, mm. which tick all these boxes, which give us a dynamic economy, which which begin to tackle the climate problem and lay the foundations, the infrastructure, if you like, for a shift to a more circular economy.
0: Sure. And I understand that. But again, you touched on it yourself when it, when you said, effectively, it is getting people to, to live well whilst respecting environmental thresholds. How do you get that message across and break this sense of disposability? Because mm. we live in an age, for better or for worse, where something can be created today, mm. be it um, a mobile telephone or a washing machine, whatever, and then a year later, we're given the same product, but it has a new twist in it and we're told that somehow or other you know if we want to improve our quality of life we have to ditch what we bought a year ago I'm not naming any company names by the way and then, um, oh, and I, think get... you've, I think you've nailed
2: it I mean I think I think there's there's something in the upgrade culture which was very crafty it was basically rebranding built-in obsolescence sure but if it's but very
0: clever advertising as well because a lot of people advertising. buy into it
2: but I think if you look around I see some hopeful signs culturally at least I think there's a backlash against this there's an interest again in people wanting something a bit more real something a bit more authentic, something that they can fix themselves. But is that really
0: true, though? Because, again, not naming the names of any companies, (laughs) uh, the, the bottom line is that people are still buying these products, mm. be they mobile telephones or whatever mm. and it shows up in company records when they're actually posting their results and they're saying, okay, we're doing very very well off this particular product, okay the market may be weakening over here yeah. but there's a lovely market ripe for exploitation um, elsewhere, over in China, over in wherever.
2: Oh absolutely and that, that, that's that, that's that's ever ever shifting and, and, and always on the move and I think it's always looking for those new market areas but I think, um, again, just taking the UK as an example, you look around and you look at the interest in sort of repairing, reducing, reusing, remaking, um, whether it's kind of in the kitchen and people doing their own cooking or or, or making stuff more generally. There's a real um, desire to... Get dump that sort of listless dissatisfaction that comes with. We all think that you know buying something new is going to make us feel good, and we know that within 12 hours or 24 hours or 36 hours, that kind of buzz wears off. The enduring satisfaction that comes from really having something which you can cherish, a better quality that you might look after, um, is a very different thing. And I think the onus is going to be on manufacturers to start shifting to things which can be repaired and reused and recycled in such a way that keeps things that gives things a longer product life and I think there's a, the, the beginnings of that happening but it is fighting all these other trends at the yeah, same time I, mean,
0: I see I see where you're coming from but then the argument there is look it's a great concept but it, it's bicycle shed it works on that very very small scale and come on, you're talking about it running a, an entire sector. Is scale is, is,
2: is a shift to a smaller scale is no bad thing. I mean, you look at a lot of British high streets, where as a consequence of the financial crisis, um, you know, lots of them ended up empty and shut down. And if you ask what is the vision for how we might reimagine the places where we live with a more dynamic, more localized, and, and thriving economy, I think it's through the incremental increase in some of these areas that you're going to both rebuild local economies, but also reweave the fabric of community. Now, that's not to say that you don't have to tackle some of these big, giant trends as well. And I think one of the big problems in the corporate world is that on the global stage, we don't have the regulatory authorities for check to provide the checks and balances for what companies are doing at the global stage that we developed at the national level to, to, to bring that in. And I think if you're going to align these global targets on the environment on Labour standards and all the rest of it. We have to have an architecture that can do that. And that's missing at the moment.
0: Right, well, John's going to provide the architecture, speaking <laughs> as The <laughs> Economist. <laughs> well, I mean-
1: Andrew knows almost as much as I do about all all of this, but I would say it is very important to link this to the particular, if you want to say, model or uh, uh, ideological form that um, the economy has taken now. The share of of public expenditure and the share of uh, taxation in the British economy and in the United States and in Europe is much lower than it was before That was money that used to go to things which were not necessarily producing things, public services and other things. Certainly when I first came to Britain in 1970, there was much more pollution of a certain type, but a half the population didn't have a car. Can you imagine that it it did not drive an automobile. They uh, they took uh, buses and so on. And the housing was, I would say, uh, more modest in terms of what you expected to find uh, inside of it. I think if we returned to a world in which there were a larger share of public services, we would discover that we had a more sustainable world. And just uh, to give a uh, finish on one, uh, one clear example, it is not by accident that a neoliberal model is to get the public sector down because that's the way you get private consumption up. Because you get private consumption up by reducing people's taxes and getting them to go out and buy new washing machines rather than going down to the local laundromat. Andrew? Well, I think we've
2: got no choice if we wish to maintain um, you know, a habitable planet to make some radical changes and to make them very quick. The question is, with what art and cleverness can we do that? We know from history that you can make rapid transitions in very short periods of time and come out the better for it. It's happened in response to things like the oil shock. It happened in response to big global challenges like world wars we've come together to solve problems like this in the past we can do so again and i think a better quality of life is possible the other side
0: i like your optimism but again i'm just playing the devil's advocate here in the time available from the perspective of developing economies they've often said look you know you guys over there in the west you've been enjoying all the money blah 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 you've had this fantastic raised standard of living we want a piece of that you know what What you're advocating? Well, you know this alternative. It's kind of going backwards. We've moved on from that recycling. That's part of the poverty trap. We don't want the poverty trap. We want the wealth.
2: Well, I don't think anybody's ever argued that recycling is part of a poverty trap. I'm looking
0: (laughs) at it from the perspective. I'm looking at it from the perspective of somebody in a developing economy, where you have to recycle on the day-to-day because you don't have the money, the financial leverage. Well, I think consume. that's an important
2: point about how what, how you, um, what people see as dif- giving them kind of status and position in the world. Absolutely. Those are cultural, ever-shifting cultural things. That said, some of the most brilliant innovations in terms of how to organise the economy are coming from Latin America, the Buen Vivir movement, which is like a transition movement, if you like, where they are thoroughly rejecting classic Western consumer models and going for much better quality of life and a much more kind of dynamic kind of community um, approach to delivering an economy and the innovations which are happening in some parts of India, some parts of Africa and and, and in China put to shame the efforts that we're making in the UK. I think the big challenge is... And it's entirely right for people to want to choose their own development path in the global south. If they're to have the environmental space in which to do that we're the ones who have to take a lead on freeing it up. We're the ones who've made some of the big historical mistakes like that and are in a position and have the resources and the capacity to make those changes. We need to lead.
1: Okay, and John, final word. Yes, I think that the, there is a new view of what development is about coming out, an industrialization which is not as polluting, in which every country does not have to have a steel mill and every country doesn't uh, doesn't have to have coal-fired uh, uh, plants. I think the thing about China one has to remember is China is seeking to be a world power. When you're a world power, you have to be able to make arms and things like that. So, so it has a particular traditional model of development which it wants to try to make sustainable. But that is not true in all countries, and particularly particularly in the the, uh, sub-Saharan African countries I've worked in, there is, I think a new model of what development might be emerging. And perhaps we can have somebody in and talk about that uh, sometime in the future.
0: I suspect you'll arrange it for us. (laughs) Guys, we have to leave it there. It really has been a fascinating discussion. As ever, time has gone against us. It's passed very, very quickly. But that was the author Andrew Sims of the New Economics Foundation and, of course, Share Radio's regular economics commentator, Professor John Weeks.